Today on the Rogue Retirement Lounge, the 4% rule, because you got to know the rules before you can break them. Welcome to the podcast where entrepreneurs go to learn about alternative retirement investing strategies and structures and all things related to planning a successful, prosperous retirement. If you're self-employed, if you're a gig worker or solopreneur, you've come to the right place to learn how to retire wealthier, retire sooner, and retire happier. This is the Rogue Retirement Lounge. So today I'm going to give you a brief rundown on one of the basic rules of retirement. And the thought process here is basically that you got to know the rules before you can break them. And I'm talking about the 4% rule. Now, the 4% rule was first introduced by a guy named Bill Benjen, William Benjen, in 1994 in a paper that was titled Determining Withdrawal Rates Using Historical Data. So the gist of the 4% rule, if you are not aware of it, is that if you have a retirement portfolio containing 50% common stocks and 50% intermediate treasuries, I quote, assuming a minimum requirement of 30 years of portfolio longevity, a first-year withdrawal rate of 4%, followed by inflation-adjusted withdrawals in subsequent years, should be safe. In no past case has it caused a portfolio to be exhausted before 33 years, and in most cases, it will lead to a portfolio living 50 years or longer. Okay, so should be safe is the key term in there. And the 4% rule has basically become law since 1994. And Benjen is now a household word in investing circles. Um, it's funny if you, I don't know if you listen to the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, but it was hilarious because that uh, Mindy, the host gal, they had uh, William Benjen on last year and she treated him like he was David Cassidy. Seriously, it was uh, really hard to listen to because she was getting so giddy. It was like she was meeting George Clooney. So I don't think he deserves the full-on celebrity treatment, but he has become a household word and he is quite well known in investing circles. So now people plan, literally plan their entire retirement up to 30 or 40 years based on this 4% rule. And just so you know, it has been revised a little bit upward. I think he came out with new guidance, essentially that said 5% is now the rule, but that still really sucks. That still means that you need 20 times your annual income uh, in your nest egg if you want to retire. That's right. If you want $100,000 a year in your retirement, which you're probably going to need if you're retiring any more than 10 years from now, um, you're going to need $2 million stashed away if you're doing the traditional 50-50, 60-40 portfolio. And most self-employed people, like me, are not going to be there. $2 million bucks is a lot to save if you don't have a 401k plan or a structured contribution plan. So I spent a lot of time considering the sad reality of the 4% rule. Um, I even read the book on it by Todd Tresseter. If you are interested in really getting to know the 4% rule, uh, the, there is a book about it. And uh, Todd Tresseter is the author. He's, he's a good guy. The rule is a lot more nuanced than just 4%. But if you want to be safe and you have a stock bond portfolio, you need to plan that. And you need to know that 4 or 5% is all you can pull out every year if you want that money to last. So the big question is, when you retire, where are you going to be in the market cycle? 
Now, think about 2009. If you were just about to retire in 2009 and you had a $2 million portfolio and it dropped by 30%, your 4% went from $80,000 a year down to $56,000 a year. And that's a big difference. So how do you check to see if the 4% rule or now the 5% rule will work for you? So what you can do is you can go to a, a simulator. There's one called FireCalc, and you can run a simulation, and it'll do it automatically. It'll just pop it out. It'll simulate 120 different 30-year scenarios to see if you'll have money at the end of the 30 years. Um, I did it. I ran a very simple calculation, and basically the assumptions are that without any other information, FireCalc is going to assume that you want to keep your annual spending about the same for as many years as you specify, that you aren't planning on receiving Social Security or a pension, and your retirement portfolio is invested in what they call a couch potato portfolio of 75% stock index funds and 25% bond funds with a 0.18 fee on the the fund. So I put in a $2 million nut with an $80,000 withdrawal rate, which is 4%. And it gave me out of the uh, the 120 simulated 30-year periods, the lowest and highest portfolio balance at the end of my retirement was minus 800,000 up to positive 11.3 million with the average at the end after 30 years of 3.7 million. So FireCalc found that six cycles out of the 120 failed for a success rate of 95%. So even then, even if you're only taking out 4%, you still don't have a 100% success rate based on the FireCalc simulations. Of course, that does not take into account Social Security. So if you take Social Security and drop your uh, distributions a little bit, you're you're gonna be fine. But that's still pretty frightening. So then I tried it with five percent, the same nut, two million dollars, and a hundred thousand dollar annual poll, and that got scary. The lowest and highest portfolio values at the end of my retirement was down to negative three point seven million or up to nine point five million, with an average at the end of thirty year periods of 2.1 million. So FireCalc found 32 30-year cycles where it failed. So that that made for a success rate of 73.3%. So now, even though the father of the 4% rule changed it to the 5% rule, you've only got a 73% chance of success based on those calculations on FireCalc. And that's fucked. I That's frightening. So either way, when I started studying this and I started looking at this, um, looking at my personal net worth, I was defeated and I was hopeless and I was looking at probably at least 70 years of age to retire. And so I said, fuck this. What would a rich person do? Rich people do not live by the 4% rule, I can tell you that. And the reason why is because they have cash flowing assets and most of them have a lot of real estate in their portfolio. So what I did is I figured out how to get completely out of the stock market and I started selling my uh, stocks in, what was it, 2017 and started buying houses. And my retirement income now is not based on my net worth or how much money I have in the market or bonds and stocks, it's based simply on cash flow. And I can tell you that you need a lot less total net worth if you're in cash flowing investments. So I bought some houses in the Midwest. I got into some apartment syndications with uh, other investors. 
Um, so real real estate is the kind of the keystone of my strategy, but there are tons of other cash flowing investment options, and I'm going to be talking about them a lot in future episodes here because it it just makes so much sense. For example, these syndications that I get involved with, when all's said and done, they're giving me at least 15% returns. And these are insurable assets. These are apartment buildings, okay? So if they burn down, they're insured. And they they will keep paying no, no matter what. It's not like a market collapse is going to come and take away the value of my portfolio in these, these apartment buildings. They just, the people just keep on paying the rent. And even with COVID, most of these uh, apartments have at least 90% of their tenants continuing to pay. So it's a good working strategy. So, and these syndications also pay me uh, an 8% annual distribution. So what's your story? So how much income are you going to need in retirement? Whatever it is, if you need 100,000 or if you need 80,000 or whatever you need, multiply that by 20 or 25 if you're doing a traditional stock bond portfolio and run your simulations at firecalc.com to see what your likelihood of success is going to be because it might be kind of scary. So if you are on track to have enough that your anticipated withdrawal rate can continue for 30 years, that's awesome and I salute you. But unfortunately, most entrepreneurs that I talk to just aren't going to be able to pull that off. So why am I even talking about the 4% rule here? Well, this podcast is not about stock investing. I want to make sure that you are fully aware of this law that you will have to live by unless you change your strategy. And again, I just want to say that you got to know the rules before you can break them. So it, you might have your back up against the wall and you might realize that with the 4% rule, you might not be able to retire until you're 75. And I was there. I thought saving was close to futile because retirement seems so far off. I mean, I did stupid shit. After I was on Shark Tank, I had a bunch of money in the bank. And so, so for five or six years in a row, we were taking these big trips to Europe and I was just throwing away money because I figured, you know, retirement is just going to be so far off and I'm nowhere even close to it. So I just became stupid about um, not saving money. So when I did really dig in and do my research and learn about real estate and learn about these syndications and learn about other cash flowing assets, I was able to shave 10 years off my work life. And that's a big part of why I'm doing this podcast. I want to help you do the same thing. So do me a favor and subscribe to this podcast and let's make it happen and fuck the 4% rule because you can do a lot better. Now, real quick, before I sign off, as I mentioned earlier, um, real estate is the keystone of my accelerated retirement plan. So I will be probably talking about real estate related topics on this podcast uh, often. Um, but today I, I, I came across some interesting numbers that I want to share with you relating to rentals. And uh, it comes from the apartment list, which is a rental site. Uh, and every year they come out with year over year rent numbers. And with the 10 cities whose rents decreased the most and the 10 cities with the biggest increases. And the biggest increase from January 2020 to January 2021 is Boise at 12%. That's crazy. 12% average increase in rents in Boise, Idaho. Um, now, Boise is a great town. It's becoming less and less great over time. I've spent a lot of time there over my, the course of my life because it's I, I'm in Portland and uh, I've had friends that live there. I've done a lot of vacations there. It's a great town. But the Californians are coming up there and just snapping up properties like crazy, driving the, the, the price of housing way up. And it's, it's getting... Uh, 
really insane there in Boise. So I wish I owned the rentals. I wish I owned some rentals there because it's the rental market is on fire. So next uh, next highest increase was Fresno at 11%. I have no idea. You would think that um, with all of the people leaving California, that most California towns would be decreasing. But I think it's kind of the flight from the bigger cities out of the Bay Area and out of the LA basin into towns like uh, Fresno that would cause rents to increase by 11%. So what about the biggest decrease in rent? San Francisco wins this year with a whopping 27%. That's right, 27% decrease in average rents in San Francisco. Median rents in the city uh, went down from 2685 a month to 1959 and that's just insane. Can you imagine if your sole source of income was rental properties in San Francisco, you just took a 27% haircut. That's fucked. So, and I, I don't know if you've been to San Francisco lately. I lived there in 1987. I lived in uh, in the, a shared house up in Pacific Heights on Broadway and Fillmore. And it was a beautiful city then. I uh, lived in a this this gigantic house with a bunch of other people. It was essentially it was an ashram, and we followed the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda, and uh, it was great. It was great. We a couple of buddies of mine who lived there. We'd go to the Fillmore projects and buy weed. We'd go to that park with the the what are the painted ladies' houses um, that you see on the Full House uh, intro, and we would uh, just go get high in the park and San Francisco was just an awesome place to be. But if you've been there lately, it's turned into a complete fucking shithole. In the last 15 years, I've been there um, probably 10, 10 or so times and it gets worse and worse every time I visit that city. It's The city government has made property and drug crimes basically unprosecutable and it's frightening. There's homeless people everywhere, there's shit in the street. Um, in fact, it, uh, couple weeks ago, I saw where a photographer was driving his Prius on an on-ramp to the Bay Bridge, heading out of the city towards Oakland, and someone pulls up next to him, smashes the back window of his car, and stole seven grand worth of camera gear, right in plain sight in broad daylight. And it's not just property crimes. There's been an uptick in assaults in Chinatown, including an assault on a 91-year-old man. Chinatown used to be really safe. I could go on and on, but basically, San Francisco has turned into a dump. Walgreens uh, has closed eight stores in San Francisco due to the rampant shoplifting, okay, brazen thefts happening in broad daylight. And when you think about the old people who live in these old San Francisco neighborhoods, they've got no transportation. They have to walk to get their drugs and their shit. And and to have a Walgreens close is really tough on people. So Anyway, long and the short of it is San Francisco has gone to hell and rents have plummeted uh, accordingly. Um, some other towns that have had massive reduction, uh, New York, rents are down 21%. Seattle rents are down 20%. Now, that's no surprise. I don't know if you've been to Seattle lately, but I lived there in uh, 92, and it's a totally different city now. I mean, really, it's it's frightening. 30 years ago is a long time, but it's really sad to see what a cool city Seattle was back in the day, and, and now it's turned into just a complete shithole. And if you want to see a really good documentary on what has happened to Seattle, uh, just go to YouTube and look for, quote, Seattle is dying. Uh, one of the local news stations up there did a great show about how how fucked Seattle is with the homeless people. And 
it's just gotten awful. So that's no surprise that Seattle's rents would be down 20% because people are getting the hell out of there. Uh, Some of the other cities that have big decreases, Oakland, California, no surprise there, 15% decrease. Washington, D.C., 14% down. San Jose rents are down 13%. And Chicago uh, rents are down an average of 12%. So that is super frightening if you own uh, rental properties in any of those cities. But... If you own a place in Boise or Gilbert, Arizona, where they're up 8%, or Albuquerque or Greensboro, North Carolina, where they're also up 8%, um, then you're doing great. So anyway, that's uh, a quick rundown of what's going on with uh, rents these days, and uh, I just found that interesting. So anyway, that's it for today. Look up the 4% rule. It's worth knowing about, and again, if you want strategies to circumvent the 4% rule, Keep listening to this show, subscribe, and we will talk to you next time. Nothing in this podcast is meant to be financial, legal, or tax advice. Though there's some kick-ass information here, it's for informational purposes only. Take control of your retirement planning, but get professional counsel if you need tax, legal, or financial advice. For more content like this, join my mailing list at rogueretirementlounge.com. And if you have questions about retirement investing, entrepreneurship, business, or anything else, my email address is matt at rogueretirementlounge.com.